Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. Stephen English and David Emmett guiding you through the last round of the 2018 MotoGP season. And it really was a thriller to finish the season. And it's been a great season all in in the Premier Class and Grand Prix racing. We had five different winners, 11 different riders on a, pole, on a podium. We had eight different riders on a pole position. And David, it all came down to that last round of the year for one big finish to the season as well. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, the weather really dictated the way that the race turned out, but um, it certainly made it a lot more a lot more interesting. We had um, a fifth manufacturer on the podium with KTM finally getting on the podium um, with Paulus Bargro. Uh, it was eventful as well, what with the race being the first attempt at a race being red flagged. Uh, for a lot of water on the track, the water was really collecting in uh, one or two corners. Um, and uh, some well, uh, some riders, uh, especially riders who crashed, uh, felt that the race should have been red flagged uh, quite a bit earlier. Jack Miller, in particular, was really was absolutely irate about it. I was in pit lane um, when the ra- the race was red flagged, and when um, Mike Trimby, who's the uh, secretary of URSA, uh, work came through pit lane then jack miller really came out and gave him gave him a, a piece of his mind said we told you about this in the safety commission uh, we wanted you to be flying the throwing these red flags much earlier um it's uh, it, yeah, I mean, it was, but it, it was difficult conditions for, for everyone. Yeah, and that probably is the best place for us to start on our look back at the Valencia Grand Prix. And it really started early in the weekend with the weather conditions all the way through the course of the week really were very treacherous, even in just in the paddock area there was standing water everywhere there there was nowhere for the water to drain and then on the racetrack we had the same issue yeah except i mean it wasn't like silverstone in that um uh, the, the track itself wasn't draining it's just that it was collecting in one or two particular uh, in one or two corners uh turn one i think and, and and one or two one or two other places um so you couldn't actually you couldn't use the line you had to avoid to uh, avoid the inside line um uh, to get around there we had a rain delay uh, on friday and obviously that was uh, 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 that was what encouraged the riders or that was the what triggered the riders to discuss the whole thing in the safety commission on friday um and that is i think what what Jack Miller was upset about. Yeah, it was interesting talking to a few of the riders. I think Paulus Bagaro was one that said it, that there's just areas of the track in Valencia that just lend itself for the water to pool in as well, where maybe you've got a dip on the entry and then a rise just uh, once you're entering into the corner as well. So you can end up with those little hollows in the racetrack that just leave you with nowhere for the water to go. And one of the areas where that was a problem was down in towards turn 12. Yeah, uh, yes. Again, and turn 12 is a difficult turn... Um, uh, it's a difficult turn anyway uh, it's um, uh, heartbreaking and then a fast foot and then a sort of a fast flick right on coolish tires so uh, yeah that, that that was very very tricky and um, uh, adding in sort of standing water it's also um, a point where there's a little bit of a dip before you go up and over the hill so it's a natural place for the water to flow down the hill from to from turn 13 and sort of collecting uh, collecting that corner there yeah, and one of the key things, David, during any weekend where you have these kind of treacherous conditions, these kind of difficulties for the riders is you get to see who's really dealing with it well and who's getting themselves tense. You're down in pit lane and your role with Dutch Eurosport TV and you get to see that pretty close up as well about just who's able to 
compartmentalize what's happening on track and keep themselves calm in the pit box and who's just getting themselves a little bit too frenzied out there yeah well I mean it's uh, honestly it's the it, it's the same people who, uh, the, the, the people who are getting nervous are the same people who are getting nervous when it's dry so um, uh, uh, it's very much um, it's very much the same people you see um, you, you go down to Mark Marquez and you see that you know he's as calm as he uh, as calm as he ever was there's no there's no real nervousness there yeah and you would have just heard the rumble there of a Triumph Model 2 engine in the background as well so we're obviously at the at the Hareth test after Valencia when we're recording this but uh, for the full weekend in Valencia it did seem to be almost just a an end of an era feel whether it was with some of the changes that we saw from different manufacturers out there different riders leaving the championship as well but do you think is this going to be one of those weekends that we look back as a bit of a, a watershed mark as well you mentioned that this was the first time where a race got red flagged and then restarted after we had standing water issues um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, calling it the the end of an era is absolutely it absolutely felt like that. Also, because there were um, uh, there were riders going missing um, or going missing, riders retiring. Uh, obviously, uh, Danny Pedrosa is uh, uh, Danny Pedrosa is retiring. Um, uh, uh, let's uh, hang on one minute. Danny Pedrosa retiring. Bradley Smith taking on a, 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 a the role of a test rider Scott Redding going to BSB um, also you know Jorge Lorenzo going from from Ducati to Honda that was that also felt like a uh, uh, like a change a lot of uh, crew chiefs changing as well or Ramon Forcada leaving Yamaha and going to work for uh, uh, going to work for uh, Franco Morbidelli in um, uh, in um, in the Patronus team, the Patronus team coming, uh, Aspar team leaving and going to Moto2, Mark VDS team leaving MotoGP. It really was, um, yeah. I mean, there, there really was a, a, a sense of a, a sense of of a change coming, a change, a, a sense of revolution. And you notice that on Mon on 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 the Tuesday at the test as well, that um, everyone was coming in feeling. Um, uh, feeling a lot more fresh than they have been in years um, normally the test on a fr on a uh, on the Tuesday everyone is everyone just wants to go home they don't really care about it but there was a lot of, a lot more optimism a lot more sort of um, fresh and smiling faces yeah change can do you good in a lot of ways and reinvigorate the paddock but uh, just one thing that didn't change obviously whenever you look at a race like this with the weather conditions we had huge amount of crashes during the course of the race yeah there was uh, there, there were much more uh, much more crashes um there's always a few crashes at, at Valencia but there were much more crashes this uh, uh, this week than there were uh, there, I think there was something like two or three times as many crashes as you, as you would expect normally there was I think by the end of Friday there had already been in the region of 50 crashes and so that would normally be enough for for an entire weekend so um uh, it was tricky, but that, I think that was just a sign of how treacherous the conditions are because they kept changing. It was never really, um, it was really wet enough for wets, never really dried out enough. But the amount of water on the track changed a lot between from you know from from session to session. Yeah, and one of the other factors as well is the fact that the tire allocation. You're not used to having a full weekend of wet weather running, so for a lot of riders, they had to manage their tires throughout the course of the weekend from Friday onwards and a lot of riders decided to maybe only use one tyre on a Friday so that they didn't 
start to eat into their allocation through the rest of the weekend. Yeah, and, and in the end, the race came down to tyre management, um, not so much um, uh, managing tyres in the race, but managing your tyres over the over the course of the weekend, um, because it was uh, Andrea Dovizioso and Alex Rins finished first and second in the restarted race, and the reason they finished first and second is they managed to keep an extra uh, an extra the set of tyres um, over the uh, through practice they'd been used they'd spent much more time on old uh, on old wet tyres and so they had a, a fresh set of soft tyres to actually uh, to actually use and that that ended up giving them a, giving them an advantage yeah, and we'll start to move ourselves through into the proper race weekend now as well and one of the biggest crashes of the weekend well actually two of the biggest crashes this weekend were probably yeah. Mark Marquez and uh, the qualifying crash in particular crashes in the middle of the session and jumps straight up and you could see his shoulder was yeah. in a bad way straight away but also at the exact same time throughout the course of the media centre everyone was there thinking he's probably still going to get back on the bike put it on pole yeah he, yeah, exactly I mean he did get back on the bike but he just didn't go very fast um, uh, it was a big crash he did he said he didn't dislocate it um, uh the word you use, I forget the word that you use exactly, but it's a, it's like a semi-dislocation. It doesn't quite entirely pop out. Uh, this is a problem that he's had for his shoulder for um, uh, for a very long time. I actually uh, remember seeing a video of him crashing at the Bruno at a private test at Bruno, I think, earlier this year, um, and also looking really, really banged up and, and grabbing his shoulder. So th- 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 this is something which which happens a lot. Obviously, it happened at Mategi when um, uh, Scott Redding pulled up to congratulate him for winning the title, and um, Marquez reached out with his shoulder, and his, and his shoulder just popped out. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a problem. He's going to get surgery on it on the 2nd of December. So, uh, yeah, it's going to need fixing. Yeah, Marquez is going to test here in Jerez and then have the surgery. But shoulder surgery is a risky surgery. It doesn't matter whether you're a Grand Prix rider or just a normal person. It's um, one of the riskiest surgeries you can have. Just And we've seen time and time again with racers, whether it's in motocross, supercross or in road racing, just how difficult it is to actually recover from a, sh- a shoulder surgery as well. It can be a proper career-threatening injury for a rider. Yeah, because it's the most complicated joint in the human body. It's um, uh, If you think about all of the, the, the degrees of freedom you have with your shoulder or the, the, the directions you can move your arms about in, um, then it's not really surprising that it should be a delicate joint, that once, it's, once you damage it, it, um, it can be a big problem. And again, uh, to an extent, the airbags have really made a big difference in that. They've, I mean, it was originally developed to stop people from, uh, or to reduce the risk of, of, of breaking your collarbone, but it also helps a lot in um, uh, actually damaging people's, uh, damaging people's shoulders, limiting the damage to, uh, to shoulders. And, um, you know, who knows, without, without airbags, maybe, maybe Mark's career could have been over uh, earlier. I mean, we saw Ben Spee's end his career because of a problem with his shoulder. Um, you know, he had two big crashes and the, that, that was enough to uh, make it almost impossible. I remember 
I think meeting him maybe 18 months later uh, uh, after the, after the crash uh, Austin talking to him about it and saying you know he still had he, he still had pain in his shoulder on uh, 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 at, at times he still had pain in his shoulder trying to go to sleep when he was racing enduro it would take him basically like you know a day and a half to to recover just from uh, just from raining, uh, running enduro at, uh, at a reasonable level yeah I remember around 2014 Spees was saying to me that uh, he still wakes up in the morning and just can't feel anything down either side so there is still some moments like that for him but as you said David he is back racing now again as well so at least he's been able to make a partial recovery to get back to at least being able to race at some level but uh, Marquez though over the course of the race as well we saw him have a big crash in the race too yeah exactly and it's uh, that's um um you know that basically ended his uh it, it ended his race we, we all thought that you know this is marquez weather um uh, mixed conditions that's usually the that or well mixed conditions wet conditions low grip that's exactly the kind of um uh that's the, exactly the kind of conditions in which mark marquez can really really thrive and um, it, he really, um, uh, yeah, he struggled. It, um, it didn't work out that way. Um, he pushed a little bit too far. After the race, he said that uh, if this had been, um, if he hadn't won the championship, he might have had a different approach. He took a little bit too risk and, uh, and crashed. Yeah, and that's the one thing that really since he won the championship, he's now had two crashes out of races, and there was three races, whether it's Phillip Island or Valencia. So it does show that once the pressure was off or he was released to ride more naturally, that Marquez is still willing to crash, still able to crash in the Grand Prix. Yeah, exactly. And we've said it before, the reason that he won the championship is by is, is through consistency. He said it was the one thing which he learned from uh, which he learned from Marquez or from from Andrea Dovizioso last year was you know consistency and you saw it just in uh, in the results which he scored and we saw that on Sunday as well David with Dovizioso able to just have a smart race at the front once again as we said earlier on able to use his tyre allocation to have a fresh tyre in time for the set, the restarted race but uh, rode very well and just waited for the race to come to him yeah exactly I mean it was a it was a typical Dovizioso managed race um, he um, uh, started carefully and just you know it took exactly the, the exactly the number of risks which he needed to uh, to win. I think also um, he figured out in the uh, in the restarted race um, he saw because uh, Alex Rins got away for uh, got away with a really big. A really uh, decent start, um, uh, pulled out a big gap, but then uh, started to come back again um, when it started raining more heavily. Uh, and I think Dovizioso sort of figured a few things out in that first uh, in that first start, um, which you know ended up being being crucial in the second restarted race. Um, I think also I mean, you also saw that to an extent with um, uh, both Maverick Vinales and um, uh, and Valentino Rossi, who were you know doing much better than um, uh, than you might have expected at, at, at Valencia. Uh, but they sort of, you know, they, they figured it out in the uh, they figured it out in the second race. But unfortunately, both crashed. Yeah, and we saw again, as you said, David, just that contrast between Davi being able to keep himself calm and just wait for the the patience, just for the the race to come to him in both sides of it. Whether it was before that red flag as well, because in that stage of the race, he really did keep the coolest head out there as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean. Um, it, well, yeah, as we said, it was a typical it was a typical Dovizioso race. He um, uh, he did what he needed to do. 
and um, uh, just stayed calm and um, uh, and in the second uh, in, in the restarted race just managed it uh, managed it brilliantly yeah and then obviously with Alex Rins in that uh, first race he was leading the race just before the red flag came out Dovey came past him but officially it was still Rins leading the race by the time the red flag came out and then in the restarted race again he was able to have a really strong pace even if Dovey caught him and was able to get through but uh, for Rince able to have a fresh tyre, it gave him the chance of being able to stand on the podium again and another podium for Suzuki. Yeah, another podium for Suzuki. I mean, it was important for Suzuki. I think it, um, uh, it now equals their best results since 2007. Um, uh, nine podiums. Um, uh, also important for Rins because he has five podiums to Ian Oney's four podiums. And as he's the rider who is staying and who has been... Um, uh, you know, charged with leading that development, it, it vindicates Suzuki's uh, Suzuki's decision. Um, and you know, Rins has really developed. He's really come on as a rider. He's really he's much stronger than he has been in in, in recent years, and is looking. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, he lost the first half of his first season to injury. And then the bike wasn't very good, uh, but this year he's been really much, much better. And uh, uh, and at certain tracks, he's been uh, competitive. And again, he looked really good. And the and the bike suited this track. Yeah, because I think it's easy to underestimate just how badly injured he was at the start of that rookie campaign. Difficult bike, and then through the course of this year, as the year has progressed, he's really gotten stronger and stronger. Suzuki's gotten stronger as well. We've seen that with Ian One as well. But uh, Rin certainly looked like he made a big step forward this year. Yeah, he, he really did make a he, he did make about a big step forward. And like I said, I think that's down to the fact that he lost um, the first half of his first season to uh, to, to injury. Um, he had a couple of big crashes, um, and missed a few races, and that was what that was what made the uh, that was what made the difference. Um, uh, yeah. So what you see also is. The it, the second half of last year was when Rins um, really gained a lot of experience because he had a really strong second half of the uh, second half of, year, of last year and the second half of this year was um, because he, he he got a really a good run at um, uh, he was really able to build on the experience of of, of the first year to understand to be competitive almost uh, almost from the start so I mean next year um, they've got a new engine which is more powerful and it, and it, they, they should be extremely competitive yeah and we'll get to next year the end of the show whenever we're talking about the testing but for Rins in particular though the, the pressure was on as you said Ian One had had some form and it was important for Rins to finish the year in the top five in the championship finish the year with more podiums than his teammate because he needs to, as you said earlier, Dave, just vindicate that decision to keep him rather than Ianone. Yeah, exactly, and also prove that he can actually develop the bike, and he's um, um, uh, he is the uh, he's capable of being a lead rider. What with Joan Mir coming in as a rookie, um, he needs to show that he that, that, that he's capable of actually leading, uh, you know, leading the project really, and. and I think uh, certainly said you know the the last few races have absolutely shown that. But again, the fact that because I spoke to um, David Abrivio during uh, during the uh, the race weekend, and he said uh, the most important thing is that we've had both 
uh, and both bikes on the podium. So it's not just been one rider. Um, both riders have got podiums. Um, uh, the bike has been competitive at all sorts of different tracks. So it means it's a solid, it's a pretty solid package. So, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the package as a whole is, is, is pretty good. I mean, if you, I mean, if you had to make a ranking of, and a best MotoGP bike, best MotoGP bike you'd have to say is the, uh, um, is the Ducati, um, second best difficult, maybe the Honda. I mean, you know, Honda did, um, uh, Honda did extremely well, but the Suzuki is right up there, um, uh, very close behind, uh, certainly better than the Yamaha at some things, but not quite as good as the Yamaha at others. So it's, uh, uh you know, it, and it's fantastic for the championship to have four really competitive, manufacturers yeah we also had all six manufacturers within i think three tenths of each other in qualifying yeah and all inside the top eight and qualifying and it shows the progress that's being made by everyone but arguably sunday it was ktm's day as well first ever premier class podium they won the moto three race they won the moto two race and uh, it's hard to top a day like that yeah exactly especially i mean it really was remarkable uh the the, the one two five race we see chan uh, uh chan unchu a one two five race that's a bit of a throwback <laughs> yeah they well yeah you see i'm an old man and i keep forgetting these things you, that's it, 50 cc red that was that was a good <laughs> exactly no but i mean like chan unchu comes in as a wild card he's 15 years old and um, becomes the youngest winner uh of a uh, of a grand prix um, uh, beating Scott, taking the record from Scott Redding, uh, unfortunately, on Scott Redding's last uh, 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 last Grand Prix weekend. So uh, again, it was a bit sad for Scott, really. But then again, it was just an absolutely incredible performance by uh, by Unchu, a sign that the that the that the, the bike is really good. Unchu is really really talented, which is why they've changed the rules to allow him to come up. Um, uh, and Binder uh, Moto Two. Had a uh, had a really really uh, a really really strong race, mastered the conditions, and um, then Paulo Spargaro, um he got lucky because he crashed at the end of the uh, at the end of the first race, but, but was fortunate enough to get back in time to be able to allow to to be allowed to restart the second race, uh, and came through and ended uh, ended on the uh, on the podium, and it was it was all just. That was all just um, Polisco Espargo. I asked Sebastian Risso, who's the MotoGP project leader, uh, and he said, no, the, these conditions, it's about the rider, it's not about the bike. And uh, just going back to the Moto3 race as well, I remember a couple of years ago I was um, commentating on the Asia Talent Cup, and it was when Can and Dennis were coming through initially, and I went down to talk to Keenan Safogdu about both the riders and just to see, like, you know, what, what can you tell me, Keenan? Like, is there any little tidbits I need to know about these two kids? And Keenan just looked at me and said, they're fast, they adapt quick, and they're going to surprise a lot of people over the next couple of years. And uh, I think Valencia, I think Ansu surprised everyone, except people that had been paying attention to him. <laughs> you know, because sitting second on the grid, to be able to qualify on fourth position on the grid really showed he had speed. But whenever it started to rain and it was treacherous conditions... I sort of thought, like, you know, he, he could probably do this. And then the race started, and he instantly was incisive down in towards turn two. He dives down the inside, and he tries just to take command of the race from the very start. And fair enough, he had lost a little bit of time to Arbolini at one stage during the race. But uh, when 
Tony crashed suddenly Ansu is just there to pick up the pieces yeah and yeah. he did a perfect job from that point on yeah to, exactly the old racing maxim to finish first first you have to finish he had two riders in front of him and they both crashed out so um, yeah I mean it was just it really was it really was an outstanding uh, an outstanding ride and I can't remember I was talking to someone about it and I can't remember who it was was saying that uh, basically because I think the Ansu brothers they started when they were riding when they were about eight and um, uh, they um, every every bike they've jumped on and they've jumped onto I think motocross supermoto all sorts of things and every time they've changed changed codes changed bikes they've won yeah they were uh, Turkish motocross champions at eight and uh, I think they've been racing from whenever they were four or five and the first time they raced the road with Keenan was when they were about eight and uh, ever since then he's sort of been able to look at them give them some tutelage bring them under his wing a little bit and uh, the future for Turkish motorsport in general, just if you think back to 10 years ago, it was only Keenan. Yeah. And now you've got top rack riders, Gariaglu and Superbikes, potentially in the next couple of years being a factory Kawasaki rider as well. You know, it, it just shows just how big of an impact Keenan has made in bringing through all that talent. It's going to be interesting to see whether we go back to Istanbul Park, which was a I mean, absolutely fantastic circuit with them, um, uh, especially that sort of um, that back section was um, uh, absolutely magnificent. So I'd, I'd be quite interested to to see if we go back there. I'm not sure whether Bernie Ecclestone still um, still owns it. I do remember hearing all sorts of stories. There was supposed to be a test on the day of the last race at Istanbul Park. There was supposed to be a test there, and um, um, but Bernie Ecclestone had just bought the track and he took ownership on the Monday. And the first thing he did was, I think, double the triple the price we were going to charge MotoGP to go testing there so they they cancelled that and there was he arrived there on the Sunday night and um, uh, he spent the the Sunday night walking up and down the um, uh, all the buildings switching all the lights off because you know it's not having people wasting money on his time. Yes, so, that's proper order for that. That's right. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Not wasting any money. I remember uh, hearing a story about uh, the last time World Supers went to Istanbul as well. And uh, I think uh, Keenan was leading the race. Sam Lowe's was behind him. And I think it was probably one of the few times in his career where Lowe's decided, eh, it might be 20 points is pretty good. I might just take that. <laughs> I think that uh, if he had won that race, he wasn't getting out of Turkey alive. Yeah. And uh, there's a, you know, there's a great passion for it in Turkey and it would be great if we managed to have a Grand Prix back there or a Superbike round back there again yeah yes yeah exactly what was the, the what's the name of that film again Midnight Express or uh, um, in you don't remember? No, you're probably too young, Steve. The, the blank look on my face, Dave, is there. Yeah. I'm not sure about that one. Yes, yes, exactly. Never mind. Yes. Um, uh, I thought you were just getting excited about Murder on the Orient Express, to be no. honest. But uh, when you look at uh, KTM, though, David, over the course of the last five years, it, since um, you know they've, they've really upped their Moto3 involvement, Moto2, MotoGP, obviously they've been in the paddock for a long time in 125s and 250s. But over the course of the last five years, they really have been able to just consistently up their investment and raise the bar for everyone in each of the classes they're in. 
Yeah, I mean, it, they've been an absolute asset to it because before, I mean, without KTM, you know, Moto3 would be would be all Hondas. Without Moto3 or without KTM, uh, it would be all it would be all Calexes. So um, yeah, I mean, they've they've done amazing. And in fact, if you look at what KTM have done in Moto3, they've pushed Honda uh, on a lot. And though the the Moto3 bikes are now just incredible pieces of engineering because those two factories have been pushing each other on, and it's a good job there are sort of fairly strict rules about development because otherwise it would be an extremely it would be a very very expensive class um, uh, to compete in indeed and um, uh, Honda and KTM are constantly um, uh, accusing each other of cheating um, and it's only cheating if you get caught <laughs> exactly exactly it's, it's not so much cheating it's just a, a very liberal interpretation of the uh, uh, of the rules if that's the one thing it's always important to remember there are no guidelines with the rules there are only the rules <laughs> and uh, all the teams and engineers will certainly do everything they can to push those boundaries but just David when we move on from the Grand Prix weekend to the te- to the test obviously this is one of the most important tests of the year whether it's the Valencia test or the Jerez test this two weeks really does determine an awful lot about what engine spec you're going to use and that can just set up your entire season as we've seen in the last three four years honda went wrong one year yamaha's gone wrong suzuki's gone wrong and if you make the wrong decisions now you pay the price for the next 12 months yeah exactly especially um the the engine homologation rules have had an enormous um enormous effect on on the importance of the valencia test the problem with the valencia test is it comes at the end of a long season people are very tired everyone is really tired and then you've got the race weekend um uh, and then you've got uh, uh, you know a, a two day two day test and that's uh, uh, incredible sort of stress but with the engine homologation rules and the uh, limits to the amount of testing which happens in the pre-season, there's basically no more time to get the engine right. And the first track you go to after the winter break is Sepang, and Sepang is not a track which is uh, at all conducive to... um, to really measuring an engine because it's a big track it's a wide track it's a big fast track there aren't any really really tight corners um which test um uh, which test the acceleration there aren't really um uh, the, the air temperatures are very high as well which uh, which uh, takes a lot of horsepower from uh, from the bikes um so that really it, it makes it really difficult to tell whether you're or whether you've got the the engine character right or not um and so it does make the Valencia test and, and again this Jerez test um, it, it, it's made it very very important and we saw uh, uh, Suzuki, Yamaha and Honda all bringing new engines to test knowing that um, it's really absolutely crucial to have their uh, to have their engines spot on here Yeah and one of the key things for each of those teams is just to be able to evaluate it quickly to make sure that it is able to work and one of the key things that we talked about in the media center in Valencia was Honda's test riding in the future and Mark has clearly taken more and more of a role where he doesn't want to cede anything yeah. to a test rider or to another rider where they'll be able to determine the course of the the bike's development that's something that uh, over the course of the last 18 months we've really seen him take on more and more responsibility with yeah not not just the past few months basically the past couple of years um uh, I think what happened is that uh, Marquez got burned in 2015 when they changed the engine and the engine was very aggressive and he spent all year f- 
uh, fighting it. It wasn't really until about Barcelona that they uh, found uh, uh, an engine and a chassis which they could actually, or not an engine, a chassis that they could actually manage the aggressiveness of the engine uh, with. And um, ever since then, in contract negotiations, Mark has been pushing Honda more for more and more control. Um, you saw, for example, in um, uh, Livio Supo leaving um, that, uh, with, along with Nakamoto, when Nakamoto re uh, re retired, these are all changes which were uh, put in uh, put in chain by Marquez because Marquez wanted a different structure. He wanted a much more focus on the technical side of the, uh, much more focus on the technical side of the bike, and also much more focus from a rider perspective and Supo was a fantastic I mean he, he, was, he was a fantastic team manager um, he was fantastic at um, uh, selling and promoting the team um, but he was never a rider he was always a team manager and so he didn't have the same sort of uh, the, the same understanding of what a rider needs uh, that uh, Alberto Puja has and, uh, and for, certainly for, for Marquez Puja's had a massive massive impact yeah and one of the key quotes I suppose from the weekend was when Marquez was asked if you know Casey Stoner could help develop this bike and everyone would look at it and say well how could it not be helped by having Casey Stoner a double world champion one of the best riders of all time how could it not be helped by having his input and Mark immediately just shot it down saying we've got Stefan Bradl he's a very good test rider he does everything that's asked of him he rides every day and he's able to give good feedback and he just shot down any thought that he would support a move to bring in Mark uh, to bring in Stoner yeah they does seem to be some kind of um, I think animosity is probably the wrong word it's a little bit uh, it's a little, a little bit strong but this is Marquez's team you also saw uh, when Marquez first came into the uh, the, the championship he was given um, a stoner's team um, but the first thing he did was you know Kick half of a kick half of them out and bring his own uh, team in, and then the year after he won the championship, he kicked the other half out, and uh, uh, and so had uh, the entire team uh, to himself. So yeah, uh, there is there is some sort of a power struggle there as well. And uh, um, Stoner does have limited test days; he has limited availability. He doesn't, really, you know, he enjoys riding, but he's not um, uh, he's not going to do twenty, thirty, forty test days a year just to just to keep Honda happy. And uh, one of the biggest developments, David, from the test, as well as just being able to use new engines, configurations, and try and determine which one you want to use, we also saw Marquez was able to use a softer tyre this week as well, which he hadn't been able to use up to now. Yeah, exactly. They've changed the uh, the, the chassis a little bit. Um, one of the problems which the Honda had was they always had to use the hardest um, the hardest allocation. Uh, hardest time in the allocation which was uh, especially at a, a place like Valencia uh, that could be really really difficult um, uh, because if the uh, to use the hard, to use the harder tire you really need hotter temperatures and um, especially in the morning uh, the temperatures just weren't hot enough to be able to uh, to be able to use it um, so for them to have a chassis where he can use and manage the medium tire throughout the weekend that I think is big um, is a big deal it's a big uh, it's a big uh, it's going to be a really really big improvement for them um slightly worrying for the comp uh, competition perhaps but then you know the competition are looking pretty strong too yeah you say it's slightly worrying for them we saw yamaha bring out two new specs of engines one for each day for rossi and for vinales and rossi saying that one engine felt a lot better the second engine didn't really feel any different so yamaha they're trying to figure out which engines to use next year after such a tough year 
but uh, is there light at the end of the tunnel for them? Yeah, I think definitely, because also it seems like uh, Maverick Vinales is, um, is, is going to have a greater input in um, uh, into the development of the bike. Um, he comes with a much more sort of modern riding style, and I mean, like Rossi's been amazing at being able to adapt, um, but it does feel like he is maybe an eighth of a step behind uh, uh, behind the rest in terms of thinking about the direction things are, uh, uh, things are going. Um, the new engine had a better engine braking. That was a big deal for um, uh, that was a big deal for Vinales because it helped him stop the bike to, 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 to get into the corners. Um, I think that's going to be a big deal for uh, I think that's going to help uh, Rossi. You also saw that uh, in uh, a few races that Rossi was following Vinales's um, uh, setup direction as well and that was when he had his better results when they shifted weight a little bit further uh, further to rear uh, to the rear that helped with uh, with tire management and also with, uh, with with the front we did see as well though david that the yamaha is still a good package just to jump straight on to we saw quattro franco morbidelli jumped onto it as well from the honda and both of them were able to get pretty much at ease with the bike from the outset franco of course with a year's experience he was able to get down to pretty fast lap time straight away as well yeah I mean Morbidelli was just outstanding on the uh, uh, on the AMR straight away uh, a sign again of how good how good the Yamaha is uh, also I think it's a sign um, of how difficult the Honda is especially the, the, the bike that he was on because he was on the uh, 2017 bike it was an old bike um, it also uh, went down and had a look at it. It was uh, it was pretty beaten up by the by the end of the season. It had some uh, fair sizable dents in the uh, in the front of the chassis. Um, uh, that team had not wanted to spend a lot of money um, uh, on that, especially since Michael Barcelamy left. Um, it was not but it was not Mark van der Straten's project. And um, since Emilio Alzamora has taken over, it's been much more about it's it's become the Alex Marquez project, and so they were just not care uh, not really uh, interested in in MotoGP any longer. Um, but yeah, Morbidelli really clearly proved that he's a he's a really talented rider. And Quattararo has got a little bit of work, of work to do, but he's making uh, he's making pro- progress. And um, it shows. You also saw uh, Juan Mir jumps on a Suzuki um, uh, again. A friendly bike, a user friendly bike, and uh, uh, and was up to speed fairly quickly. Um, but for me, I think the rookie of the, uh, the, the 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 standout rookie was was Pekka Banyaya, who was just absolutely outstanding. He looked superb on the bike, and he was really fast. Yeah, see, for me, it was Mir. When I went out to watch Mir, just looked really good right from the outset. But like what you said, David, some bikes are a little bit more user-friendly for a rookie and the Suzuki and the Yamaha clearly are two of those and the, as you said earlier the Ducati's the best bike on the grid so it definitely does make it a little bit easier to adapt to it we also saw teams having to adapt to new bikes as well with Tech Twa switching to the KTM uh, yeah exactly and um, really Tech 3 had a real uh, they struggled um, uh, both Oliveira and Sierrin had a uh, had a tough time adapting to the bike the front end of the, of the bike feels very different to uh, to, to the Yamaha um, uh, they were having trouble sort of getting feedback from the front end uh, you also saw Zarco as well Zarco had a, had a couple of crashes um, Zarco was uh, again really struggling with the with the with, with the turn in and with the uh, with the feeling at the front end he said this is the area that really needs uh, this that really needs fixing um, again the, it, it, that was good for Paulus Bargaro because Paulus Bargaro um, 
they were sort of comments that Paul said that he'd completely forgotten about that um, uh, he'd just grown so used to uh, this feeling that uh, it reminded him oh yeah yeah no that is a bit of a problem and it would be good if it was uh, yeah, if it was if it was better but I think it's going to be a huge step forward for KTM to actually have four bikes on the grid um, uh, obviously they've got Mikakalia testing and uh, from next year they'll have uh, Danny Pedrosa as well but he won't get his first ride on the bike until uh, I think the Sepang test yeah you'd imagine that it'll be the private test just before Sepang yeah. that we'll get the first opportunity to see what Pedrosa's like on that bike uh, it, yes exactly it'd be interesting to see if he actually sticks around and does the uh, uh, does the factory test uh, you know the full factory test as well yeah and one uh, one other thing that we saw change, whether it's here in Jerez is our first chance to see it, but we should see at Valencia that there was the curtain drawn on the Honda era in Moto2 as well. Obviously, Honda have produced the engines since 2010 for the Moto2 class, but now we're going to have big change with Triumph Triples coming in. Yeah, and just looking trackside, they look really different. They, um, you can tell the riding style is very different. Um, they're a lot more aggressive. They need a lot more physical... Uh, efforts to actually ride and control them uh, they're actually going to be more entertaining to 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 watch and um, uh, again you've seen sort of how quick the the rookies on them have, uh, have managed to to adapt i mean jorge martin until unfortunately he fell off um, and uh, uh, broke his arm and his uh, and his and his ankle um, but uh, he was looking really quick uh, the new electronics i think are going to help as well um, uh, some of the riders have been saying that they they're, they're uh, leaving a lot more rubber down on the uh, down on the track, which again is a sign that um, um, uh, it, it's not as smooth. It's the the, the extra torque means that there's a, the, there's a lot more rubber actually being laid down and the, and changing riders. I think you were out watching. Um, uh, watching the rides and looking at the way that the riding style had changed. Yeah, for a lot of the time it's just seeing who's actually adapting to the new bike and a lot of riders still trying to carry a lot of lean angle, a lot of corner speed and it, it's not fast. We're looking at the lap times and it's not working compared to the riders that are trying to get into the corner fast, just get through the corner and then stand the bike up and just accelerate on the way out and that seems to be the style that's working so it's a bit more like a MotoGP style compared to what we've seen in Moto2 in recent years and that's going to be good for riders it forces them to adapt, it forces them to make changes and now it's going to be about who can adapt quickly to that and get the most from the new engine the new chassis configurations and the new electronics as well and talking to some of the riders, the one thing that they did say David was that with the new engine it's definitely got more power compared to in the past obviously with bigger displacement and just how they're the torque is used in the engine but uh, it's you know second third gear really seems to work really well and then just seems to run out of power a little bit at the top end compared to what some riders were expecting i think there was quite a few riders that said they would have liked to have it a little bit more top end but just in that those middle gears definitely seems to be working very well yeah exactly i mean it's the, the it seems like the uh, honda engine had plenty of um uh um, had, had plenty of uh, um, well, it seems like the Honda engine had plenty of top end power, um, but it didn't just didn't really have any um, a, any torque. So you had to carry as much as much uh, corner speed as possible, so you wouldn't actually uh, you know lose any. Um, uh, yeah, so you didn't have to accelerate so hard. And this is much more about getting the bike stopped 
getting it around the corner and then using the torque of the, uh, the using the torque of the uh, of the engine to get out of the corner to, to get better drive and, and more acceleration out of the corner the corner speeds are already much lower um, uh, or mid corner speeds are much lower um, but, but you know people are able to brake harder and uh, accelerate harder and um, and you can really see them fight, fighting the bike because there's no anti-wheelie on the bike the, the bike wants to wheelie more uh, and you can really see them the riders actually having to work Okay, and just David, looking back on the full Valencia week, whether it's the test or the race, who's your big winner from the weekend? Um, I think, um, well, I, I think you have to say the big winner from the weekend is uh, KTM because of what happened. Um, uh, podiums in all three classes, first time since I think 1997 at Assen when Aprilia did it. Uh, or the, the last time a European uh, a European manufacturer did it, um, uh, getting finally getting the KTM MotoGP bike on a podium that was a uh, that was a big deal. Um, really, it, it looked to me like KTM um, KTM were looking like. A really significant ma- manufacturer in all three classes. Obviously, they're significant in Moto uh, Moto Three and Moto Two, but they, you know, staking a claim in Moto in Moto GP, and it meant a lot to them. I was down in pit lane, and I've never seen so many men, so many grown men crying. Didn't know whether pit lane was wet from uh, from the rain or from the tears of grown men um, uh, letting their emotions run free. Um, it was really quite. Uh, it was quite remarkable. It was hard. It was actually hard not to, uh, not, not to choke up uh, uh, down there. You and I'm too old for that sort of nonsense. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I thought that it was just Neil crying down in pit lane <laughs> that the season was over. He'd be devastated that uh, you know he has to wait until March for a new MotoGP season to start. But definitely couldn't uh, argue with KTM as the big winner from the weekend. It was a, such a great performance by them. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to almost concur with you on my big winner from the weekend. My big winner was Turkey. Just to be able to have yeah. a Grand Prix race winner for the first time and just such a bright future as well for the, for the country and its, and its riders. And as you said earlier on, David, they changed the rules to allow Canon Suter race. That was where if you won the Red Bull Rookies Cup, you were allowed to compete in the Moto3 World Championship. And that's, uh, it opened the door for him, but he showed that he warranted that door to be opened. Yeah. And not just that. I mean, his brother Dennis is there as well. And, and, uh, you know, the, the Rookies Cup and the Asia Talent Cup, it was basically just a battle between, uh, between Chan and, um, and Dennis. So, um, it really is going to, it really is going to be a bright, uh, a bright, champ, uh, you know, a, br- a bright future between the two of them. So, if there are winners, David, there's also losers. Who's your big loser of the weekend? Um, uh, controversially, I think it's going to be Mark Marquez oh. because um, the the this shoulder injury is a big thing. This shoulder the shoulder injury is a really big thing, and the the, the shoulder injury is a sign that things really could. Um, you know, I think this is this is his Achilles' heel, only in a different part of his body, uh, anatomy. Obviously, um, he, he can't keep on falling. He falls off a lot, and he doesn't injure himself because they're always low sides um, and slow speed and manageable. Uh, but there's still clearly a risk. Uh, he injures himself during um, uh, during. 
practice as well. So, uh, the, you know, to have two big crashes, two big dislocations, it limited him in, in testing, or at least it concentrated his mind in testing. He didn't do as many uh, laps as he might have uh, otherwise. I think testing went quite well for him, but um, really, I think it was uh, it was. A, a chink in the armour, if you like. This this weekend exposed a chink in Marquez's armour. See, it's interesting that you're saying Marquez is the biggest loser. I'm actually going to go with the rest of the field as the biggest loser <laughs> because Marquez showed in the test that it was forced on him by track conditions. Track temperature was quite low, so they had to use the softer tyre, the medium tyre from Michelin, to be able to generate any grip in the test. But just being able to use that just shows that uh, Honda and Marquez has the potential to be even stronger next year. But that all depends on how well his surgery goes as well. Because once he has the surgery, he's got two months to get himself fit to get ready for the Sepang test. It shouldn't be any real issue for him to get back to fitness for that. But as we mentioned earlier on, one of the biggest questions you're going to have is just how fit can you get after such a, a, such a surgery? It's a difficult surgery and it's going to be really interesting to see just how long that recovery takes him. Yeah, I mean, he, um, uh, Marcus said that his brother Alex has already had the surgery and recovered from it. And Alex has been sort of uh, pretty competitive. But as you say, um, he has, what is it, something like eight weeks, um, eight or nine weeks before the testing starts. That's fine. Um, but he still will have missed out on some conditioning training, some, some strength, uh, some strength training. Uh, so he'll be like two, three, two or three, maybe four weeks behind, um, where he needs to be. Um, and he'll have to work extra hard again in between the Sepang and the Qatar tests. So he may start the season just maybe half a step behind where he would really like to be and if uh, the the Ducati gets off to a good start and the GP19 looks fantastic um, uh, around uh, around Valencia uh, a track is not really suited to um, and we'll see again at Jerez uh, Ducati has historically never gone well at uh, Jerez I think we're really going to see uh, we're going to see where the Ducati is so that could be a real risk for uh, uh, for, for Marcus but as you say if they can use the soft if they can use one step softer front tire then um they're going to there will be fewer races where mark marcus has to set off a second place um and it it could get sort of uh, big gaps quickly so we move on david to the last segment of our show <coughs> the moto gp monologues and just for you david We've got 60 seconds to be able to talk about a topic in MotoGP. But just talk about this season in general and uh, whether or not we're, we're in the midst of that golden era or that we're just having gone past it now. Maybe this year wasn't quite as good as some of the previous years. But how would you sum up this season? Uh, I think we are definitely at the, uh, uh, at the start of, the, uh, of this golden era. Um, there's... So much talent coming through. We saw Peko Bagnaia on the Ducati and he looked fantastic right from the start. We saw Joan Mir on the Suzuki and he looked really fantastic. Maverick Vinales is developing into a better and a better rider. Um, uh, uh, let's see who else, who else. Rossi is still racing. Mark Marcus is still only 26, I think, 25. Um, he's got a lot of racing left in him. Um, Jorge Lorenzo, well, we'll have to wait and see how he adapts to a Honda. You know, he's going to adapt to a, to a Honda at one point. Uh, we've, um, uh, the rules are stable. Uh, the bikes are good. 
Um, uh, the um, the bikes are um, becoming more and more e- uh, equal. I think the, the the rule balance is really really good as well. Um, uh, I think Moto, the, this new Moto Two is going to bring on uh, rider talent even faster. So I think uh, I think we've got another ten years of golden uh, of golden era ahead of us. Yeah, definitely can't argue with that, David. To be able to look at this year, it really has been something special. And uh, for me, one of the areas that sort of follow on from that as well is is there too many great riders in the world championship racing now and when i look at the grids whether it's for world sbk for moto gp for the feeder classes within moto gp as well moto 3 and moto 2 red bull rookies you look at british Superbikes, you look at all these championships around the world and there just seems to be too many good riders for the amount of bikes that we're able to get. We're recording this show here during the Hareth test. Eugene Laverty's just been confirmed on the Go 11 Ducati to fill one of the remaining seats in World SBK. Javi Fares goes to BSB on a Honda. And for me, it just shows how difficult it is for world-class riders now to find the seats that they probably would have warranted a couple of years ago. And if you look at Loris Baz is still on the rider market, Jordi Torres is a Grand Prix race winner, a World Superbike race winner. He's still waiting to find his ride. And we're here at the first ever Moto E test. And suddenly we go down to the garage down there to see which riders are available down there. And you've got riders like Bradley Smith, a Grand Prix winner. You've got World Endurance champions down there. And it does just show to me just how strong the talent level is across all the different world championships now absolutely when i first came to um uh, uh when i first came to moto gp there were basically you know five six riders that you really needed to go and talk to and then one more uh, just to get something uh, to get some interesting insight i mean you need the the, the two factory hondas the two factory mrs uh, and you needed the uh, and you need to talk to casey and and uh, casey at, at ducati uh, uh, nicky when he was at honda um and maybe go down to tech three to talk to some of the riders there but that was the, the, that was the, the the rest were frankly fairly irrelevant uh, now i mean just to get a sense of what's going on inside the race you really need to talk to between 12 and 14 riders maybe even 16 riders um uh because all of them could potentially feature every single uh, every single race and when you play the game of well he's not good enough it's like you know what people said about danny pedrosa they should get rid of him give his seat to seat to someone else and then when you ask well who else yeah, they come up short of names because there's lots and lots of really, really talented riders. Um, but are they as good? Are they as good as? Uh, are, are they as good as that? There are. The, I mean, there are. The depth of talent is incredibly. Uh, um, it's incredibly deep. It's incredibly wide, um, and um, it, it's hard to say that one rider prefers a ride over another uh, uh, over another rider just because you know they're 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 also they're, they're also close together. If you look at World Superbikes, Jonathan Ray is probably riding better these that he's ever uh, better than he's ever ridden. It's going to be interesting to see what what Charles Davies can really do. Eugene Laverty, you know. Still an outstanding uh, an outstanding rider, nearly a world superbike champion, and in a decent team on a decent bike, he's going to be he's going to be competitive. There is literally, you know, there literally aren't any riders. There are, um, I mean, look on the look on the grid right now. Who would you who would you take off of the off of the MotoGP grid? The list of candidates who don't really deserve the well, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't deserve to be in Moto in MotoGP anymore. You can make a case for all of them. 
And that really is the best sign of just the level that we have right now. We've said it before in this show that at the end of the day, the biggest interest is always going to be, despite it being an ultimate team sport in motorcycle racing, the biggest interest is always going to be in the riders. And when you've got a depth of field like we have, it really does just give everyone that level of excitement going into the race on Sunday. Yeah, exactly. I think it's also worth mentioning that the just the level of uh, competence in the teams is really, really high as well. Um, uh, the, the teams can make a huge difference. You really see that like in Moto2 and Moto3 in World Supersport. Uh, the difference between a winning team and a, uh, and a losing team. You see it when team when, when riders switch. But in, certainly in MotoGP and at the top level of, of, of World Superbikes, the teams are all absolutely top-notch, absolutely outstanding. They don't make mistakes. Um, uh, they, they understand the details of racing. They work on the details of racing. And that's what makes the difference. And that's what's making also uh, the racing so close. Yeah, and we'll be able to delve into that on the next show because we'll be able to look back at this Horeth test with the Moto2 changes. We've also got the Moto E riders here. We've got World Superbikes. We've got Moto GP. So it really is a full-on test here at Horeth. And on the next show, we'll definitely dive into that. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be, I mean, it's a full and tiring program of racing, but it's a, a deeply rewarding for a full and uh, uh, full program of, of, of racing and testing because um, the, there's so much going on there and there's so much to keep, so much to look forward to, so much to uh, to, to keep your interest. Yeah, I was reinvigorated by the 24 hours off season that the Grand Prix paddock has. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Which was basically the drive between uh, uh, the, the the drive from Valencia to Jerez. Basically, that's that's that was our reinvigoration. Invigoration. Yeah, it's amazing what fear and adrenaline can do for you on a drive like that. <laughs> you got here in one piece. Yeah, just about. <laughs> but uh, luckily, we're able to dive into the Jerez test here straight away for us. And on first glance, it certainly has looked like it's been a good change with the Triumph engines and Moto2. I'm looking forward to seeing what the Ducati V4 is like. And then, as we've already said, just these tests are so important for the MotoGP teams just to get themselves ready for next year. Yeah, they're really important for the they're really important for the factories to know what to get ready for Sepang for next year. But um, they already look quite well set up, and um, uh, it looks like being a fascinating year of, of uh, 2019. Absolutely, David. So thanks for joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast once again. Uh, yeah, and thank you for uh, for hosting us once again. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening in. And be sure to follow us on the so- on our social media channels, particularly Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod and also on Facebook at uh, the Paddock Pass Podcast. So. Um, uh, and also a, a quick word if you want to help us to keep on making this show remember you can join us and uh, become a, a, a patron of the show at patreon.com slash paddock pass podcast uh, what we've been doing there is uploading little bits of um, exclusive audio for uh, 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 for uh, for our patrons and um, I think there is some interesting stuff there we had uh, Jack Miller uh, talking about Valentino Rossi's crash at, uh, at Tapang which was um, uh, which was interesting. We'll have one or two other bits and pieces which we'll, we'll, we'll be uploading uh, soon. So if you enjoy the show, remember to tell other people about it, rate us on the podcasters and um, uh, help support us financially. Yeah, we're trying to evolve the show now as well and uh, obviously coming to these kind of events, David, it gives us the opportunity as well to try and create some content just exclusively for those Patreon customers as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and I, I think it's going to be worth your money. So, thanks for joining us, and as I said, next show, we'll be looking back on the Hareth test.
JB's should uh, definitely edit out the moment where David says that the message from his wife is pure bollocks. 